This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, Brian here. We're about to get into an interview with the fabulous Dom Lucician, writer of The Athletic. But first, a couple quick things we want to tell you about. First off, Elon. Yeah, I'm here as well. First off, let's mention, as we've been doing for the past little while, you're running out of time to listen to the world's first ever NHL audio almanac before the season actually starts. Brian and I put a bunch of time into it. You could get a 27-plus hour audiobook at your disposal, breaking down the fantasy value of every single player. We reference it actually a lot in this episode. So if you want to get what we were talking about with all those references, check out keepingcarlson.com slash almanac to buy it. We'd love if you could support us there. I think you're going to like it. I'm pretty confident. The second thing, if you want to become a patron of Keeping Carlson, we're about to start the season and there's a lot of perks that you can get if you check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron you can check out everything that you will get if you want to buy brian and i one of us a beer once a month we'd really appreciate it as we're going to give you a full season of awesome fantasy hockey content you can check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron for that and that will give you a 20 percent discount on said almanac first month almost pays for itself Wow, what a deal. Elon, I also wanted to ask anyone listening, if you enjoy the show, please give us an iTunes review. Like, write us just a nice little note on iTunes. It does us a a little bit of a favor, is what I hear anyway. So please, if you haven't listened, that costs you nothing. Okay, so enough jibba-jabba, enough of us trying to ask you for stuff. Now we're going to give you something, this amazing interview with Dom Lecision. Enjoy! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson, 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 hoj här kommer Carlson, 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 ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson, killar jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Neil Dubrovsky, and once again, we've got a special guest. Of course, we have the fantasy hockey robot, Brian Com, with me as always. Hi, am I the special guest this week? Just once, I want to be the special guest. Okay, next week I'll call you the special guest, but right now we've got a much more specialer guest. We've got Dom Lucician from The Athletic. According to his Twitter, he is the chart boy and hockey writer for The Athletic. Dom, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. So, Dom, when do you graduate from chart boy to chart man? (laughs) Uh, I I think I could be a chart boy forever until... uh... Until maybe Myrtle dies and then I become the chart man. <laughs> or, or you can have... <laughs> Brian. Brian said this joke right before we started recording. And he cracked himself up so much. And I was like, let's save it for the show. And now this is what's happening. Brian, it get it out. It doesn't feel authentic. Dom is going to have his chart mitzvah one day. <laughs> and he'll, he'll turn from a chart boy into a chart man. 
So, Dom, we're very excited to have you on the show. You have this set of projections, not only a set of projections, but it comes along with this amazing spreadsheet that's super configurable. We want to talk to you all about it. Before we get to that, though, we have to start with the number one fantasy hockey headline of the week, which is this big trade that happened overnight. I haven't had this happen very often where I wake up in the morning to a trade. But Max Pacioretty has been sent to the Vegas Golden Knights in exchange for Nick Suzuki, Thomas Tatar, and a second-round pick. Obviously, the Habs did it because Pacioretty doesn't want to play with them. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent. So I don't know if we want to spend too much time digging into the trade itself, but I'd love to talk about like the fantasy impact, especially like, what's going to happen with someone like Max Pacioretty, who has been so amazing for so long, always a 30-plus, like 60-plus kind of guy. Last season was a disaster, of course. He fell off. Played only 64 games due to injury. Ended up with 37 points in 64 games. Now he goes to Vegas. Dumb. I was looking at your projections. You had him for 55 points next year. Brian and I actually also had him for exactly the same. 55 points. A little bit less than 30 goals. What do you think this trade does for Pacioretty's value? Does he go up? He's got to go up, right? Probably just a bit. I like well, The way I do things... Like, it doesn't account for the quality of a team you're playing for. It's just what you've been in the past and how many minutes you get, how much power play time you get. And it's unlikely that change for Pacioretty. You'll still get 19 minutes. You'll still be on the top power play in Vegas. But obviously, sometimes you got to use use your brain instead of just looking at the numbers in front of you. And if he's if they keep the Marcia So smith carlson line together, it means that Pacioretty will be on the second line with... Paul Stastny is probably the best center he's ever played with because Montreal has never had a good center. And the fact that he's on the second line instead of the first line, he won't be facing Bobsich's best defenders either. So I think he'll get 55 points according to my model, but I wouldn't be surprised if he goes to 60 or 65, maybe with a, a ceiling of 70. Wow, that's high. That like that's a high ceiling. I guess that's assuming he's, he's on the assuming top power play, right? Everything goes right. Right. I mean, I think it's very fair. He's been close to a 70-point guy before on the Habs, like you say, being centered by, well, he threw some shade at, like, Thomas Placanitz. He's he's not so bad, is he? But obviously, yeah. Paul <laughs> he's Stas- no Paul Stasny. No, Brian right. loves Paul Stasny. I mean, last year, Pacioretty was playing with the likes of Andrew Shaw and Philip Dano for the majority of his even-strength time. Now, like, first of all, we assume he's going to get on the top power play. We actually had a discussion last week in our bonus episode with Daniel Negreanu, and we were trying to guess who was going to be that fourth forward on the top power play. Is it going to be Paul Stasny? Dasney or Alex Tuck, I guess at this point, just forget about it. It's just probably going to be that first even strength line, you know, like Marcia So, Carlson, mm-hmm. and Riley Smith, and then you have Max Pacioretty and then a defenseman on that top power play. Yeah, yeah, that's probably how I would figure things go. And even even if he doesn't improve to 70 or 65 points, I think 55 points is a good bounce back, and he does enough with his peripheral stats that he's still probably undervalued compared to what his average draft position is in most formats. Yeah. and Well, my alternate theory for the Vegas power play is that uh, they, like last year they ran two pretty equal units, right? They had Perron mm-hmm. and Neil crushing it like somehow on, on their one B unit, so to speak. So now that they, like they could theoretically keep Carlson Smith, Marcia, so and out throw Alex Tuck, out on that first unit with one of uh, Colin Miller and Shea Theodore. And then the second unit has that other defenseman. Now they have like, they're, they're close to having enough forwards to fill that out. And Stasny, Pacioretty, Howla, and, uh, and some other guy, right. But, but that's how Vegas got by last year with all these, some other guys becoming actual guys. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they can handle rolling two units this year. So it, that would be my alternate thought, which I still think is a good situation for Pacioretty and I like th- this trade 
moves what I, I had his projection around 55 when we did our almanac. And now I feel like that's more his floor and 70. Maybe I, I shouldn't have been so aghast at going that high for upside because yeah, he's been, he had 67 points two years ago. So 70 is not out of the question two years after that. Um, mm-hmm. But now, but now it's like, yeah, I believe patch ready can get to 55 instead of saying, well, if everything breaks all right, he can probably get 55. Yeah. I feel like 55 is, is probably not like that seems too high for a floor, especially since we just saw him get like 37 or whatever in Montreal. Like we know that he can apparently do much worse. Like I think that like when I've looked back at how my projections have done, it's just amazing to see how different, like how much the the variance is at the end of the season. I think the gap on average is around like 10 points on either side where that's like your, your best or worst case scenario. So that's the way I look at ceiling and floor. Like if I see, like most of my projections are pretty conservative and it's built around the idea that there is a 10 point cushion on either side where I guess the players could fall. Yeah, I think that we'll see that when we get into the projections that we disagreed on that I wanted to talk about. Most mm-hmm. of them are ones where we were higher than you. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say how you don't actually take into account the team situation. So it'll be really interesting to discuss that and see how you like decide or justify, I guess, not thinking about that. And you still yeah. end up doing pretty well. So it's very interesting. But maybe first, let's continue talking about this trade. Oh, Brian yeah, wants to jump well, in. I'm also going to just jump in and say, like, you didn't, you don't take in, you don't take team situation in, but you do take in, you said minutes, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't see Patrick. He was already playing on like the second line in Montreal last year. So mm-hmm. I feel like his minutes don't even uh, like you don't really have to do much. To, yeah, to try I, and... I, I didn't change anything. Like I was up last night when the trade broke and I'm like, great, I got to update things now. <laughs> and the only thing that really changed was, I guess, like because I, I have plus minus projections this year against my better judgment. <laughs> and uh, that changed because you're on a better team now. But the only big changes were that I downgraded Eric Halla significantly because I figure he's no longer on that second line left wing and he might not get as much power play time now either. So I like he looked like a guy who would be a good sleeper and now I'd probably just maybe pick him in the last round if I was really feeling optimistic about him. At all, yeah. And now if you want to be optimistic, hope that this uh, this 1A, 1B power play situation holds yeah. up. But uh but that's a frustratingly, that's one of the things we'll have to wait for for like the first few games of the season to know if it's happening. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of these other players. So yeah. Howla, already we were worried about him because maybe he was even just going to be the third line center or something. Now he's not even had, doesn't even have a chance to be the second line left winger or the second line center. So yeah, he's done for fantasy relevance next year, I think, in most formats. We got to talk about Thomas Tatar. He goes to Montreal. It was like, it seemed like he was kind of down and out on Vegas, but at the same time, I would have assumed he was going to get a shot on the second line playing with Stasny. So it could have potentially been a good situation for him if he would have been able to hold on to it. Now he goes to Montreal, where I guess he might get the uh, Pacioretty treatment. Like maybe he gets to play with Dano and Shaw. But also I feel like maybe there's an opening for him on that top power play. Because you look at who Montreal has. There's the obvious guys, Gallagher, Druin, and Max Domi, I guess. And it was going to be Pacioretty as the fourth forward there. At least that's what I would have guessed. Now, like, who is the fourth best forward on Montreal? Is it Thomas Tatar? Like, is he the one that we should be assuming is the front runner to get on that top power play? Uh, it, it very well might be. I think I, I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a lot of people suggest he could fit there. And the other candidate is probably Charles Houdon. But it's it's really bleak. And if you're hoping for for players to fill a role on the Montreal top power play, I feel like you just don't just don't bother. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, well, and with Jeff Petrie, I mean, Jeff Petrie's capable mm-hmm. on the point, but he's he's not quite Shea Weber. So even until Shea Weber gets back into the lineup, it even looks a little bleaker. Although, Elon, you might not like that take from me. No, I don't know. I mean, but it was something we were kind of saying to people, like a little sneaky pick, like pick up Jeff Petrie because he was really good last year when he took over on the top power play. But uh, now, yeah, another piece gone in Pacioretty. Mm-hmm. Maybe Suzuki will be great one day, but you can't imagine next year, even if he does make the team, like how much of an impact can he really make? Uh, anyone else, Brian, that you want to discuss that like gains or loses? But what did we decide for Tatar anyways? I guess it's sort of like could be good, could be bad. We don't know. Seems like it's the same for uh, like... Paul Stasny, like, I feel like it could be good because he gets this awesome left winger, could be bad because he probably gets bumped from the top power play. I guess you could actually say the same for Alex Tuck. So, like, I feel like with a lot of these players, it's hard to know whether they benefit or lose. Maybe the biggest loser is Jonathan Druin, who guaranteed now won't be able to play with Max Pacioretty on the power play or at even strength if he was going to get any time with him. So I can't imagine that's good for him. But Brian, do you have any other players that you have a definitive take or Dom? I guess, Brian, you want to go first? Um, well, I don't know. I, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll ask now and then continue through. Dom, I'd like to, to know your take on Lekkanen versus Sitar. Lekkanen is like everybody's favorite hockey hipster pick. It's like, oh yeah, I think he can break out. Uh, that was last year. And the opportunity didn't necessarily really arise, but it still looked like there's a chance. Like, he's still young, 22 years old, so so there's a chance he can still improve into something, and I'm open to it. But now with Tatar, uh, definitely above him in the depth chart. You know, maybe Lekkanen can flip over to right wing, or Tatar can flip over to right wing. But that that does uh, essentially still leave Lekkanen blocked out of the top power play unit if the Habs do stack it. And then, uh, it's, I mean, it's good news for Paul Stasny, who now has Max Pacioretty to play with instead of Thomas Tatar. Like, that's a great person to be setting up. And Stasny is uh, very well capable of it. And Alex Tuck, too. I think this is good news for him. Uh, again, we go back to the power play situation. If they do go with a 1A1B, we don't need to worry about him squeezing on to the top unit. I think he can be a, a solid power play point producer, uh, especially when he's surrounded by Marcia so, Carlson Smith, and uh, whichever defenseman they end up playing on that top unit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with Lekina, I, I think he probably falls into the Charles Hudonker category where they both took a lot of shots last year. They both got a lot of scoring chances relative to the amount of minutes they got, and they just could not score. So maybe that's a Montreal system thing. Maybe that's something they have to be better at. But when you have a guy getting that many chances, he's worth keeping an eye on. But for now, I don't think he's relevant yet unless he gets that top power play spot. All right. Well, that's good, I think, for our Vegas Habs trade talk. We didn't have too much time to prepare for this. We had to go to work. Brian, you were at Rosh Hashanah dinner just before. (laughs) So maybe we'll get to this a little bit more later on in the preseason. But Dom, let's get to your projections sheet. So you've already kind of hinted at this. This was the big revelation for me when we did our interview a year ago, pretty much, was that you don't actually do anything yourself, like manually in terms of using your brain to come up with what numbers. You just have a model. Obviously, you do a lot of work to set up the model and get it to to work the way you want. And I guess you said that you put in uh, maybe ideas of how much ice time they will have, but you kind of let the model do the decisioning. And then you ha- you kind of like just stick with the number, even if your gut tells you that it's not right. When I'm personally drafting, like I will make some gut decisions like this year, like I'm in a keeper league, and this year my keepers were kind of old. I had Kessel, Malkin, Ovechkin, and I wanted to get younger, so I traded Malkin for Barzell and Picks. And then at the draft, I just targeted as many guys under 23 as possible to just hopefully get someone that can break out. And 
there were guys that my model identified that could if they got the requisite minutes. So guys like Alex DeBrinkett, Braden Point, and Ryan Pulak were my three biggest targets, and I got them all. So that was good. So we'll see how nice. see how that goes for me this year. But uh, yeah, when I come, my projections are basically all just what they did in the last three years, weighted by recency, age adjusted on a permanent basis. And then I make a judgment call on how many minutes I expect them to get based on where they fit on the depth chart this year and where they were last year and the, the difference between those two. And mm-hmm. if, and then I have to as well adjust for power play time, which is the trickiest part of any projection because you, you really just don't know who's on the power play at this point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that's the one part where you get to sort of be like, oh, is Tatar going to get on the top power play or not with mm-hmm. Montreal? But yeah, man, I kind of wish now, because Brian and I did this audio almanac where we were trying to come up with projections and we like looked at a lot of data, but in the end we sort of ran the data through our guts to come up with a number that kind of felt right for each of us. And mm-hmm. I feel like we should have coordinated. It would have been nice if we would have had what your model spat out to use as our baseline and then just decide if we want to go higher or lower than dumb. Though I actually look, and we actually pretty much agreed on things. Like I feel like by looking at this i feel pretty good about our projections because i know we're kind of close to you or maybe that just means that we're just not taking big swings and going mostly with what's happened recently but of the 282 projections we made all but 23 of them were within 10 points so maybe you could say 10 points is actually a big difference but i think it'll be fun to talk about those few ones where we disagreed on but overall like such a useful tool by the way i've made a link keepingcarlson.com slash dom will take you to go and download Dom's projections. And like I said, like, Dom, maybe do you want to explain quickly, like, beyond just the projections themselves, like, the spreadsheet? I could go and sell it for you because I really love it, but I don't know if you want to say stuff about it. Basically, it just was an idea that came to my head when I started doing fantasy football drafts because I don't know much about football other than watch. Like, I don't know who's good. I don't know who's coming up, but I would just look at things online. There's all these projections, and then I stumbled on something called value-based drafting, which is a way to separate positional value based on scarcity of, I guess, how many value players are at each position. That's something that's important in hockey when you separate center left wing and right wing, when you have defensemen and goalies to draft, how early do you take a defenseman even though you know they don't get as many points as a forward. So that's the heart of the spreadsheet is I created a VORP type thing where I basically measure that value over replacement forward at that position. And then the rankings customize based on their value of replacement. And it all auto updates based on what your league settings are, what categories you use, whether you use points or category league. And it helps because hockey's not standard. Like you'll have the Yahoo standard leagues or whatever, but not everyone uses that like every league is different and so you can look at all the rankings you want they are not going to help you as much as something that's tailored specifically to you yeah so you Tom, you mentioned first value-based drafting is like the shortest way to say what we try and encapsulate a lot when we're talking about drafting strategies as we did on our most recent show too when you're talking about which position like should i draft the best player available or draft based on position because of the 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 depth of similar players likely to be available in my next turn and my next draft pick opportunity. Um, so value-based drafting helps you make those calls and you, you dropped VORP and then you said value over replacement, but I just want to connect that dot for anyone listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like VORP is a very 
handy acronym. Saves you a lot of typing. Value over replacement. And it's a good way um, to, to really figure out, hey, should I draft this high-end 70-point center, even though there's seven of them available in the pool? Or should I be drafting this 63-point right winger? Because after him, it's all guys below 60 points. Yeah, that's that's basically that's basically it. And I think for a lot of people, the biggest thing will be the value of defensemen because you most leagues you'll need four of them and only two at each forward position. And there are just not that many defensemen who can score, especially with most teams going to four forwards, one defenseman on the power play. That leaves about 30 guys who are on the top power play. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I've always loved the idea of drafting defensemen early just for that reason. At the end of the draft, well, everyone is fighting over the scraps of like who's going to get Alex Goligoski or whatever. I could then go and grab some pretty decent looking forwards. Maybe like a Paul Stasny at that point is still mm-hmm. available. Everyone else is going for crappy defensemen because everyone already filled up their centers. So yeah, I love... And the nice thing about your spreadsheet, and I don't just mean this as like an infomercial for your spreadsheet, but I actually <laughs> found it really interesting to learn about this strategy, like really like put it into numbers in my head is like the way... because the nice thing is you could exactly see how everything is calculated. So like you literally just look at who's the like, you know, hundredth best center compared to the center we're looking at and then see, you know, what's the difference. Then you do the same thing for all the positions. You really get a clear number value of how much better this player that you're looking at is over the best replacement level guy based on some settings that you set at the beginning. So mm-hmm. it's, very, it's very cool. So very handy tool. Even if you hate Dom's projections, you hate his idea of looking at the last three years. Like you have to look only at the last year. Like that's fine. You could download the spreadsheet, put in your own numbers and still use the tool. So, okay. With that, again, keepingcarlson.com slash Dom. Okay. <laughs> got, got, but you, you came all this way to come join us virtually, at least. I know you want to be watching Monday Night Football, but instead you're talking fantasy hockey with us, so we appreciate it. It's okay. It's just the Jets lines right now. That's not important. Yeah. Who, who cares? <laughs> I totally know about all that stuff. I, how did the, pa- the Winnipeg Jets and the BC Lions, right? <laughs> how did the Packers do yesterday? Oh, man. It was an unreal game. Rodgers got uh, injured early and the bears were looking like they were actually good and then rogers came back and destroyed all their hopes and dreams and uh one of my good friends is a, a bears fan and i was watching with him and uh the range of emotions was incredible to witness can i make a football reference because i think this is like one opportunity where i actually can doug flutie uh <laughs> i wish i wish i could we'll work that into an episode title maybe uh, no but i saw browns fans celebrating after their team won in overtime uh, after going winless last season i feel like that's going to be uh, like any ottawa or montreal fans this year hey don't discount vancouver they could also be in the party of teams <laughs> they, with, with they could also be very excited about their team winning what will turn out to be a meaningless game yeah, also Detroit. Like, we, you got to be inclusive with all of these terrible-looking teams. No, no, but no, those those organizations are not quite as in the dumps as Ottawa and Montreal. Sure. Okay, so, Don, right. what I'd like to go to now is really focus in and make it seem like, make a mountain out of a molehill here and, like, discuss all the players that we actually did disagree on by a lot. And I think the interesting thing is that we don't actually disagree. It's just your model. So it'll be interesting to get your opinion of whether you agree with your model for these players or if you more agree with Brian in my gut of how we think these guys will go. And I wanted to start with Brent Burns, who your model has all the way down with a measly 61 points, which I guess makes sense because last year he did have a bit of a down year overall compared to the you know near point per game numbers he was putting up for the couple years previous, or at least 70 plus. But 
like what we pointed out in our almanac was that Brent Burns just had a terrible start to the season. A lot of San Jose just wasn't able to score. Like also Joe Pavelski wasn't doing anything at the start. And then once you take out like the first couple months of the year, Burns was basically like a point per game guy all the way through was like leading all the league in shots, I think, except for Ovechkin after that stretch of the first like 15, 20 or so games. So Brian and I both ended up assuming that we could just throw the, that first couple of months into the garbage and project Burns for a much healthier 70 or 75 points. I had 75, Brian had 70. You're way down at 61. Which uh, of those numbers do you think is the more likely scenario for Burns next year? I'm going to say straight up right now, you never throw anything in the garbage. There's only one time where I've thought you need to throw in the garbage, and that was Sidney Crosby under... What's his face? I don't remember. Mike Johnson, I think that was the coach. And like, he just looked awful. And that uh, that affected my model for a while because that was obviously not Sid. That's the only time I ever said, throw that in the trash. We don't need it. For Burns, like, here's there's two things that are suppressing his projection. Number one is just all defensemen are regressed to the mean more heavily in forwards because there is a bit more uncertainty projecting points for defensemen. And the second thing with Burns is that he is old. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he's in his low 30s, maybe 32 yeah. or 33, something he's, like that. He was 33 last year. So he's obviously an elite scorer, and those players tend to age a little better. But it's I think it's better to be on the safe side, and there is a chance that he falls apart. And last year was a sign that he's not the point-per-game player we thought he was a couple of years ago, and he's on his way down. So that's why... 61 is a bit more conservative and I definitely can see him hitting 70 or 75. It's just, I can also see him hitting 50 if things keep going downwards. That I, I I just don't know that San Jose is bad enough for Brent Burns to only get 50 points. I feel like you could throw a lot of, a lot of power play quarterbacks just onto the sharks and I'll be able to handle grabbing 50 points with the sort of deployment that Brent Burns gets. I, I know you're saying floor, so I'm not going to blow that mm-hmm. up too much. That's um, like everything going completely wrong. Joe Thorne's knee just explodes. Joe Pavelski. <laughs> it explodes. He in flies in the sun. I don't, I don't know. Everything goes wrong and Burns can be a 50 point defender. That would be terrible if Joe Pavelski flew into the sun. That'd yeah. be really bad news for San Jose's yeah. season. When you say you regress all defensemen harder to the mean, yeah. uh, you mean to say that you push them all closer to what averages would be reasonable for a defenseman rather than that particular defenseman. So say like a high percentage uh, defensive shooter or goal converter, like say Ryan Ellis, who can shoot, you know, around eight or 9% gets regressed down further away from his own personal percentages and more likely closer to what uh, an average NHL defenseman would have. Is it, did that uh, make sense? My, it does, my... but it's not exactly the way I do things. I know some other models you would, project shots and then shooting percentage i just project goals based on past goals and i feel that works a little easier for me so with burns it's just a matter of projecting his points based on the last few years age adjusting and then regressing based on how well points predicted points in the past three years when i looked at the last 10 and uh, i think it said to regress by around 20 or 25 percent Brian, I think that what um, what you're getting at when you're saying that you regress defensemen more is just like you make age affect defensemen more than you make age affect forwards. That's what you're saying, right? No, no, not uh, <laughs> age. Age age affects everyone the same, which is which might be wrong. It could be wrong, but uh, I just mean that if a player gets 65 points and he's a forward, he might be regressed down just to 60. But if you're a defenseman, you regressed down to maybe 57. Okay. Okay. 
Now we got it. A hundred percent. Ready for the test. Let's talk about another defenseman and see if we could apply this knowledge. Another guy we disagreed on is Tori Krug. I do want to say about Brent Burns. I think you guys are wrong. Like, I think that Brent Burns is going to get like 75. Wait a second. No, I'm, I projected up there. Well, you projected Elon 70 points. I went like mid to high sixties, which rounded to 70, which is how we did our almanac. Mm-hmm. We, we rounded numbers. Like he had, Brent Burns had 84 shots going into his 21st game of the season on November 24th. So like uh, almost two months and no goals for Brent Burns, which is like weird. Right. And you could, Mm -hmm. I guess you could suggest that the the quality of his shots and the expected goals that he had coming out of those shots wasn't necessarily as high, but I feel like the way he scored throughout the rest of the season um, like was, was pretty much in line with what he'd been doing. But of course, age is a concern. This will be his age 33 season. He'll turn age 34 in March. That's exactly why defensemen need to be regressed more because they take shots from farther out. Their shots going in are more prone to luck. So even a guy who scored so many goals like Burns can hit those dry spells even if he's taking all these shots because the shots just aren't as good as a a shot taken from a forward. Okay, so now let's try to go to Tori Krug here. So Brian and I both had him down for 60 points next year. After he had a great year last year, he ended up with 59 points in 76 games. That's a 64-point pace. So if anything, we were being conservative, putting him at 60, until mm-hmm. you look at Dom's spreadsheet and you have him down at less than 50 points. So what do you think is the reason why your model pushed Krug to fall so much? Uh, Krug is an interesting one because... When I was uh, advertising my spreadsheet and, you know, hawking it on the old Twitter.com, I put the top scorers and then I did top defensemen. And then the first few mentions were, where's Tory Krug? And I'm like, did I forget Tory Krug? He should be here. And then I looked and he was just like just off the list of like 47. I'm like, that's probably wrong. And uh, <laughs> like, I'm like, how much did you get last year? And I think it was like 58 or something. And you, were, you said 64 point pace. And I'm like, I, I genuinely don't know what happened there i'm pretty sure it is just a a regression thing and because he was injured last year didn't get in as many games he gets pushed further because the sample size in the last three years is smaller i'm guessing those mm-hmm. are the things contributing to it he also doesn't get as many minutes as some of the other big point producing defensemen yeah yeah so that's one thing that that's held him back like he gets two or three hundred fewer minutes than a lot of guys who are scoring at similar rates as him. So he Mm -hmm. doesn't actually have the opportunity to score quite as many points, but he is like an even strength. He's a top 10 offensive defenseman. uh, If you look at just his rate stats, but of course he's 27 years old. Uh, There's Dano Chara and Charlie McAvoy. Like they don't need Tori Krug to be a workhorse. uh, Mm -hmm. So he's not going to get to be one, which is why, uh, you know, we like him to hold steady, but we love Tori Krug. So I'm, I, glad, I, I'm I'm relieved to hear that you yeah. looked at that and scratched your head. Yeah, I, I like I like Tori Krug, uh, especially since he gets a lot of shots as well. That makes him valuable. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what happened there, and I looked into it. And I'm like, I guess this is this is what it says. Uh, mm-hmm. I can I can lie to you and say, yeah, Charlie McAvoy is going to eat into his power play time, but that's that's not what happened. I th- I'm pretty sure I had him at the the same power play minutes that he got in the last three years and i i think it's just regression being a little aggressive for defensemen 
Okay. Well, that's reasonable and interesting to know like what you think might have gone into it. I know Brian's always like super reticent to like consider that this like new hot young defenseman might eat into the power play time. Like I know Brian, like you you don't seem concerned at all about Provorov potentially bumping Ghost Bear because Ghost Bear has been so good. And I think same with Tori Krug and Charlie McAvoy. Are you of the same mind, Dom? Like very unlikely that McAvoy or someone like Provorov could like usurp. Even Brian, you're like not so certain that Rasmus Dahlin, or I think you sort of backed off on that a little bit, but like that Dahlin could steal the power play job from Ristolainen, at least in the first season. Dom, what's your take on these young defensemen and like when they have a for sure top power play defenseman ahead of them, but the young one seems like they have a lot of promise. Like how could, concerned are you that they're going to take over? Uh, I'm really lucky to be working at the athletic with the way they've expanded where there's now a beat writer in almost every market. And for my season previews, I want to get a sense of the depth chart and I literally talked to everyone and said, what do you think this is going to look like? And if there were questions about the power play, then I asked about them. And of course, when I had my own fantasy draft, I mentioned that to my friends. And they're like, that seems unfair. I'm like, this is my job. I don't care if it's unfair. <laughs> but uh, for those specific cases, they didn't make any inklings that uh, anything like that would happen. The only, The only player who... I was told could steal a power play job was Ryan Pulik on the Islanders, which is why I targeted him in my own league. And that's because Nick Letty was, wasn't as great last year, I think. And Pulak has that how it serve a shot. But for Darlene, I think he, I think the Sabres might even go three, two and put him there, but I don't think he would usurp Ristolainen in a, in a four, one uh, McAvoy. I just think Krug is just too good there that they're fine. Yeah, like Krug is bombing and Charlie McAvoy is not even really like on a hundred shot paces. So mm-hmm. you've got th- them both offering two very different things. One guy you want on the power play uh, is is the one shooting it, of course. Although the the Golden Knights have Shea Theodore, who's uh, I, he's better than Charlie McAvoy offensively, or at least in his numbers, what he's shown. But he, it's so, there's sort of an analog between Colin Miller to Shea Theodore and Tori Krug to Charlie McAvoy, but. Also, not at all. That's a terrible analogy. It's just like one guy is known for like running the show and uh, like Colin Miller and Tori Krug are just letting it fly from the blue line. And the other two, I think, are are less inclined to be shooting. Okay. Uh, I think that maybe Charlie McAvoy might. Like, I think that the Charlie <laughs> McAvoy fans might not like it that you said that, that Shea Theodore is known to be like so much better offensively. But I, mean, I guess we'll let time tell. They're still pretty young. Let's go now to a uh, forward, a superstar forward that we disagreed on in Johnny Gaudreau. So Brian and I both just were expecting the good times to keep on rolling with Gaudreau. Like last year, he had, I believe it was a point per game pace. I got it up here. He had 60 points. Or no, what am, what am I looking at here? Whatever, 84 points in 80 games. That's it. 64. 60 and 60 assists. He had 24 goals, 60 assists. 84 points in 80 games. That's an 86-point pace. Brian and I were both thinking he'll just keep on doing it, get up to 90-point pace next year. But, Dom, you have him falling a bit from that point-per-game pace or above a point-per-game pace down to a little bit below 80 points. Is there a reason that you think? Is it just because Goudreau only got there last year? Before that, he was closer to, like, a 75-point guy? Uh, I think the year before he was even lower than that, wasn't he? I think he was in the 60s. I might be mistaken. Oh, I'll I'll look that up. But that's basically it. You With a guy like Goudreau, because I didn't notice that as well, that a lot of people had him high and I was under point per game for him. And it always comes back to floors and ceilings. And with Goudreau, we saw his floor two years ago and we saw either what you should expect from him last year or his ceiling. I'm not, you can't be certain about what you saw. So we just be safe and project under 78 points. And if he gets to 88, 
that's cool. If he gets to 68, then we know that 78 is closer or point per game was closer to his ceiling and not his actual true talent level. Yeah, so Gaudreau's numbers over the course of his career, 64 in his first year, then 78, then 61, then 84. So it's like guaranteed to be in the mid-60s if that pattern continues. But I don't think it will. I think Mm -hmm. uh, I feel a little more confident in Gaudreau. Like if you look at his last three seasons, so two of those were good, and then there was the one down year sandwich in between. He's 13th amongst all skaters in the NHL and points scored Actually, that goes way back. That goes back to 2014, 13th amongst all skaters and points scored. And last year was the first time where we saw him actually kick up some of his rate stats, like uh, his 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 percentage of shot share while he was on the ice went up. Uh, shot attempts per 60 went up. Points per 60 went up. And that was really the first time it's happened. So I got kind of excited about that. And he also only scored three times on 56 power play shots. So I saw that as another place where he can probably uh, at least like if he's going to regress in other places, that'll help balance the scale a little bit and hold him to where he is. So I 90 points was definitely a swing. Like that's a hopeful moment for me. And I but I, I still feel like super confident um, that he'll get 80 until, of course, I saw your projections. I absolutely would not be surprised if Pedro hit 90. Like just watching him, he has the talent to go through literally everyone on the ice if he wanted to. It's just the fact that we we saw that he hit 61 just two years ago, and we know that his floor does exist, and he can be that low. But even if he's, like, he's young, right? Yeah, like he is he, young, yeah. He is 25, so if we're looking at what he did in his rookie or sophomore season, although it was his third year, um, mm-hmm. but, like, as someone, do you give any, do you cut someone any more slack when they're at such a low number and they're just in their the, the beginning stages of their aging curve? It's always it's always tricky for players who are just coming on, especially if they don't have a full three years to go by. But with Gaudreau, this is his going to be his fifth year, so there there is data for him. He's not as young as someone else who's in breaking out because I think he started his angel career at age twenty two or something like that. But at the same time, there's also the team effects where he'll have a talented right winger. Uh, finally to play with whether that's Elias Lindholm or James Neal there'll be someone there that could boost him up and even if you are conservative like I am there's still the fact that the entire left wing position is incredibly scarce this year and he's one of the few that can really light it up so it might be worth it just to reach and hope for that 90 point season because he obviously has the talent to fulfill it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think one other point in favor of Goudreau is the fact that he's always had a third piece on that top line that's not been that great. You know, Goudreau, Monaghan, and someone. Like last year, Furland was there for a lot of the time. Now they signed James Neal. If James Neal doesn't work out, they could play Elias Lindholm there. Maybe Matthew Kachuk gets up there. Like, I feel like he's going to have better line mates this year and also better people on the power play than you. So though he does lose Hamilton, but I don't know. I, I think overall it's looking good for him. But So I think the interesting comparable is you talk about Goudreau being able to like skate around everyone. Another guy who people talk about like that is Matt Barzel, who's one of the rare players where you actually have higher than mm-hmm. Brad and I both did. So you had him down at 85 points. So a whole almost 10 points, eight points more than Johnny Goudreau, I feel like. I mean, obviously in a draft, it's a whole different thing. Because like you said, Goudreau's a left winger and Barzil's a center. So you might, even if you did agree with those projections, you would still probably take Goudreau earlier. By the way, Brian, you said Goudreau at one point, And I know that Daniel uh-huh. Nibirnu would tweet at us if uh-huh. I didn't correct it. So that, that's for you, that correction. Uh, 
So yeah, how like do you uh, believe that Barzil's eighty five points? Like he did it last year, so I guess that's why you're projecting it. At the same time, now Tavares is gone. Like we've had this conversation so many times about what do the changes on the Islanders? What will they mean for someone like Barzil who had such an amazing rookie season? So what do you think about this eighty five point projection? Brian and I had him a lot lower. Well, not a lot lower. We both had him around seventy five points. Uh, Barzell's a, a tricky one. Obviously, I like him a lot enough to target him myself in my own league and give up Malkin for him. But the thing is, is that when I was doing my research for my Anders preview, I was looking into Barzell, and there are not many players who have done what he did under the age of 20. Like, I think he, he had 84, 85 points last year, and the amount of players who have done that in the salary cap era is, I think, like seven. And it was like Crosby, Ovechkin, Malkin, Stamkos, Austin Matthews, and Connor McDavid. So not even John Tavares himself was able to do what Barzell did. Not and even God himself. Not even not even Pajama Boy himself could uh, <laughs> could do what Barzell did in his first season. So I think that's reason enough to be optimistic and think maybe he can keep that up. I wouldn't be surprised if regression did came did come, but. He's also at an age where he's only going to get better. The only issue with him is how much should we discount quality of competition? He's going to be the guy in, on the Islanders. Can he handle the heat? Because he doesn't have Tavares in front of him. And I think he has the talent to do that. But he'll be a very interesting test case this year to see how much quality of competition matters when it comes to projecting points. Maybe 85 is too high. Maybe he should be closer to 80 because... It seems like that would put his range at 75 to 95, and I'm not sure I see a 90-point season. But the amount of players who have done what he's done is so small that I'm just really confident that he can keep it up. Yeah, I'll clarify your point. And it's a, it's like it's one that everyone should really realize. Four players in the salary cap era have been uh, rookie point-per-game rookies playing at least 65 games, and you've got Ovechkin, Crosby, Malkin, and Barzal. So uh, it's elite company he's in. The reason I, I put him down is I, I just feel like there needs to be an Islanders tax on anyone in Long Island at the moment with the way their offseason has gone. Like, I, I just, I can't totally, like, Barzal, I, I feel can overcome a lot of whatever quality of competition extras he needs to face this season, but I don't know if he can overcome the rest of the franchise being run in a bit of a loony way. I don't, maybe that's, Maybe that's overly punitive for just not trusting in a front office. I mean, he has to have good players to play with, right? I think it's going to be so interesting to see who's going to get those lines. That's one of the teams where I'm most curious to see how the lines are going to shake out. Because last year, there was that whole Bavillier-Barzel-Eberly line that did really well at the end of the year. But at the same time, then what happens to Anders Lee? And what happens to Josh Bailey? Like, I feel like all these guys are going to be affected by whether or not they're playing with Barzel and for how long. Next, let's go actually to a team where Dom definitely applied a big tax compared to our opinions because there's three Buffalo players that we like all agreed upon and they're all like top guys worth discussing in like Sam Reinhart, Casey Middlestat, and Kyle Ocposo. So for all three of them, we were about 10 points higher. So I wonder overall, like I'm kind of optimistic about Buffalo. Like they've got Darlene now. They've brought in Jeff Skinner. Jack Eichel is hopefully healthy and a year older. So I feel like everyone is looking really good. I was even excited about Kyle Ocposo potentially having a bounce back just because, you know, last year he was going through all those injuries. I know that your model is not going to take that into account. You're not going to give him credit or, you know, give him a, a, a free pass for last year's 
sad point total because he was injured. Like your model doesn't take that into account. So I think that makes sense, but I'm still curious to know, like Sam Reinhardt also, you know, he started to really break out last year and he's playing with Eichel. That's probably going to stick for next year on the top line and on the top power play. So Dom, what do you think about these Sabres guys? Are you happy with what your model spat out for them? Or do you think that maybe it's a bit too low? Uh, I don't, I used to really be like uh, Kyle Poso, but I didn't even think about him this year. He was not even on my radar. I, I don't even care what his what his point projection was or how the difference was. He's just I just don't think he's fantasy relevant until he proves otherwise this season. And that goes hand in hand with the other person that I was low on, which is Casey Middlestat. And that's simply because rookies are difficult to project and I use mostly NHL equivalencies and Casey Middlestat surprisingly had a very low NHL compared to the hype surrounding him and if there are player point total over-unders, I'm smashing the under on middle stack because I think he's just a bit overhyped and he might be in over his head in his first season. I, I could be wrong. I think I have some goodwill with the Sabres fan base because I projected their team for 86 points because I am optimistic. I just, I'm a little skeptical about middle stat based on what he did in college last year. So with rookies, I am like literally through our almanac. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to project rookies. I sort of, I gauge the hype and I gauge the sources of the hype. And then I translate that into a number. And I I do look at who in college has had similar paths. So for middle stat, I guess the names that, that I came out with were guys like Kyle Connor, JT Comfer, Tyler Mote, or Mott, I always get that wrong. Zach Wierenski, Zach Hyman, Dylan Larkin, Ryan Dezingle. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag. Yeah. Um, so how do, does your model take into account certain college, like how a player performs in college, or is that, is that you making those numbers work because you, your model, uh, only works with NHL numbers? Uh, it's basically using NHLE and then looking at other sources to see what they say. And if they deserve a bump up like Middlestat did, then they deserve a bump up. Cause I think two years ago when I first released these projections, I only used NHLE and I got burned for how low line A was because Finnish NHL was comically low and he didn't do that well there by that. And then he exploded for however many points he got. And maybe middle stats the same where he's much better in the NHL than he was in the NCAA. And he obviously had that six game trial last year where he looked good, which is something I, I did factor into his projection. So I think I used a combination of his NHL and NCAA numbers, but I'd just still be worried based on what he did in college. And just to clarify, Elon, before you take us, or or before Dom, some Elon, you'll direct us where to go. But NHLE is a, an NHL equivalence uh, mm-hmm. rating that sort of quantifies what an analogous uh, production NHL production would be for whatever league the player is playing in. So the value of fifty points in college, the NHLE will give you the 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 commensurate production that that would be worth in the nhl it's not like a translation but it's mm-hmm. a, it's just sort of a value a value yeah. comparison yeah that's basically it okay so dom you were about to talk about sam reinhardt i i, I, I was yeah uh, i love reinhardt um my my roommates in my fantasy hockey league and she took reinhardt in the second round of our keeper pool and i was hoping to get him like round four or five as one of my targets in that under 23 range because i was trying to get younger and she took him so early i'm like <sighs> why he's not supposed to go this early and i i just think that if eichel really breaks out and has a 
point per game season or higher. And then I think Reinhardt will be along for the ride. And we saw that last year in the second half when he, I think, was on a 70-point place or higher from January onward. And if Buffalo starts hot, I think it'll be because of those two. And I would not be surprised with a big breakout from Reinhardt. I just, it's not something that I'm able to personally forecast based on his past history. That makes sense. It's the same with like someone like Middlestat. Like you talk about how he did in college and all of that, but a lot of it's going to depend on you know the opportunity that he gets. Same with Reinhardt. Same with I think Kyle Posu, who I think uh, he might be a little bit of a sleeper just for me. Then <laughs> apparently you disagree. I still think he has something in him. If he can get on that top power play, it might be Ocposo versus Middlestat fighting for that last spot to play with. Especially if you say there's going to be uh, two defensemen on the top power, but there's well, really they'll probably have spot. they'll probably just have that first line. They might have Skinner, Eichel, Reinhardt, and if they have two defensemen, then those two guys are on the outside. So I, it'll depend on if they want Darlene on there or if they put that use that for a forward. When that's Ocposo or Pominville or Middlestat, I guess. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't consider the potential of the two defensemen. I liked my little analogy I had at one point that I thought Middlestat <laughs> is like the Barzil. You know, no, last year yes. there was no, Michael. Was. No. <laughs> All they're, right, not, awesome. they're not even the same stratosphere. I know a lot of Buffalo fans are like really hoping for that. And if Middlestat is anywhere close to 70 points, I will come back on this podcast and apologize to everyone in Buffalo personally because I just do not see it. Yeah, I definitely said that more just because the players around. I just had fun with the analogy. (laughs) I was like saying that I think that Jeff Skinner is the Anders Lee. And I think that, you know, like I just sort of like went through the list there, like Pulak and... Poso is the Eberly, which isn't true. But like it was a a very fun analogy. Elon, (laughs) you said you never heard anyone suggest the three forward to defense possibility. Uh, Yours truly considered it back in like June. How about that? But uh, but it it feels re- like for me that was just like throwing it like out into the stratosphere and seeing if it stuck. But now that Dom said it, it's got weight. <laughs> I'm out. Did you, am I supposed to give you credit because you thought this thing in June and didn't share it on the phone? No, I did. I no, I mean, I if I only <laughs> thought it, I wouldn't be like quoting crediting myself for it. I said it. Check the tapes. Okay, uh, let's go to the next player. So, th- okay, one crazy and one that's actually worth talking about. So, on Edmonton, Brian and I just went nuts with Connor McDavid because why not? I feel like it doesn't even matter <laughs> what you project for Connor McDavid because obviously you should pick him as the top player. So, yeah. whether you say two hundred points or one hundred fifty points or like, what does it matter? So, Brian and I both ended up with like one twenty six or one twenty five. I it, think it, it, had- it was to be above Joe Thornton's best best mark in the salary cap era. We, mm-hmm. we just figured, why not? Why not put McDavid one more? One above that. But I think the more interesting guy to talk about is Oscar Clefbaum, who last year I thought was like going to be a really smart pick. You know, the guy leading the top power play from the defense, playing with McDavid, who we knew was going to be so good. And Clefbaum was like just a total bust, even though he took a lot of shots, but hardly any points. Now we go into next year, and obviously your model is going to have Clefbaum low. But at the same time, I don't know, you have him at 35 points, and Brian and I both put him closer to 45 points, and I feel like there's even upside for him, but I don't want to go too crazy, because last year we really burned a lot of people probably by suggesting they get Clefbaum. But what do you think about Clefbaum for next year? Does he have competition to be the top guy in, in Edmonton? Uh, there, there actually may be some competition. I heard, I heard from Jonathan Willis that there is a slight chance that with Sakura out, Evan Bouchard might be the guy to make the team out of camp, at least on a tryout basis. And he has the talent as a power play QB to just completely steal that spot from Clefbaum, who is more of a shooter than a, a QB. But that's obviously like a very, very low chance. And maybe that happens and you look like a genius picking up up right away. But 
I wouldn't put my money on that happening personally because Bouchard is just still so raw despite being a top 10 pick. Clefbaum, uh, I, I do like to draft this year because he should still be on that top power play and because his peripheral stats are still so good. And I just don't think that power play will be as terrible as it was last season. And that's enough to take him as maybe your third or fourth defenseman. I have him much higher than whatever his ADP is, so I'm on board. But I don't think 40 points is... Like, it's reasonable. I just wouldn't expect it. Uh, it would probably be, like, a ceiling for me. Yeah, Clefbaum is someone... Like, Elon, you said we we led people astray with him last year, but we really did believe in him all year. And I think Clefbaum's biggest competition, if it's not uh, this prospect who could make the, the team out of camp, is the Edmonton mainstream media in front of office. It seems like no one in Edmonton <laughs> wants the guy to succeed. They're the ones who will keep him out of that top power play spot and cycle in Boucher and, uh, or is it Bouchard? Bouchard. Yeah, Brad, you're totally, you're like, okay. this prospect. I got it. I got it. The first round. Like, I got yeah. it. Okay. And cycle in Bouchard. And then when Bouchard doesn't work out, Ethan Bear, and then they'll put in Andre Sekera on crutches. Anyone over Oscar Clefbaum seems to be the Edmonton preference. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he he did have a, a shoulder injury last year. So that probably hindered things. And I think with full health, he could, bounce back this year i do i like him as a as a sleeper candidate but i i took him early last year as well because i also thought he looked good and would anchor that top power play and now i'm a little little gun shy but i i still have faith yeah Yeah. i like i like him to grab later than you were able to last year when you probably had to pick him as your number one or number two guy and like you Mm -hmm. just said dom he could be your number three or number four guy and a lot of people have have made reference and especially us over the offseason but duncan keith's poor shooting luck and i'll just make like he had no shots on 137 even strength shot uh, sorry he had no goals on 137 even strength shots Clefbaum only had two goals on 137 even strength shots, which is nearly as unfortunate as Duncan Keith. Uh, like there's so many reasons to believe Clefbaum is better than his numbers showed last year. And, and the health thing also gives us reason for optimism too, that he's back. He's fully ready and capable. Mm-hmm. I, I do appreciate you bringing up Duncan Keith because I have heard that there isn't a guarantee he's on the top power play and it may in fact, be Eric Gustafson, which would be a supreme sleeper with your your last round pick. Just a dart at the wall if this guy can get on the same power play as as Patrick Kane and Schmaltz and Dabrinkit. Oh man, Brian, that's gonna kill you in that in our <laughs> Chicago chapter because you were like telling everyone, "Don't worry about Duncan Keith; he's fine." And I was like, "Oh no, he's kind of old." So uh, long as he's on the top power play, but yeah. but if he's not, that's. That's big trouble. Like, let's just play play a game. Let's mm. do a thought experiment. If Duncan Keith was on the top power play, how would you feel about him? Still 50-point capable? No. Uh, 40, 45, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Right. So maybe I'm I'm the biggest Duncan Keith projector out there. That dude also, is old as hell, man. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> and also, Brian, like, you're like, okay, assuming he's on the top power play. Last year, he wasn't on the top power play for a lot of the year. He got bumped by everyone. And then your only reason to say he's going to be there is because there's no one else. There wasn't anyone else last year. Like, who was Cody Franz and who's Jordan Osterley? Like, why not Eric Gustafson? So yeah. I like Dom's opinion. And <laughs> Brian, I don't know why I'm being a jerk right now. <laughs> Okay, let's just let's just move on to the next player that I wanted to bring up, which is mm, oh, we're running out of time. There's so many interesting players. How about if, if, honestly, I if there's players, we can just keep on rolling. The game doesn't start till ten twenty. We can just 
Take our time. Cool down. All keep right. talking about players. It's fine. All right, let's take a breath then. So, oh yeah, one thing I did want to say then, if we do have some luxury of time about Oscar Clefbaum, is what I like about Clefbaum also and a lot of the Oilers is they last year were so bad on the power play, which I feel like you'd expect them not to be like so bad again next year. And also they had the least number of power play opportunities. So if either of those things goes back to somewhat average, that's already a huge improvement. And then you could also hope, like Brian, you were saying that Clefbaum didn't score at even strength. So if he could get a few more goals at even strength, that would also help. Plus he's great for peripherals. He gives you some blocks. He takes a lot of shots. So yeah, a lot of upside. Yeah, you don't need to reach for him. That's the nice thing. Now you could get him as your third, fourth defenseman. But I feel like don't just let him fall too far because you get a super cheap potentially really valuable guy on your fantasy team um okay with that i'll go to the next player how about dylan larkin he's someone who i think it makes sense that your model is not going to go too crazy over because he hasn't done it yet i feel like a lot of people are expecting larkin to really break out next year as the guy in detroit like there's no zetterberg taking time like larkin didn't even get 50 percent of his team's power play time it was like he got a little bit less than 50 next year you'd have to assume that detroit's just going to stack their top power play with whoever they can and have larkin at the top there so you have him down for 60 points dom brian and i were both closer to 70 are you more confident in you or us <laughs> well i actually drafted larkin in my uh in my hunt for under 23 players he was a target for me and he's definitely underrated compared to what his ADP is, which is 147, which is stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think 70 is probably a best case for this season with how much talent is around him. And we we saw two years ago where he had a, it was a two or three, I don't know, where he had a bad year. That's He has a floor that we are aware exists. And it's no guarantee that he can survive playing top minutes. Uh, so it's interesting that you guys were lower on Barzell for Tavares leaving, but now with Larkin, you think he will improve despite Zetterberg leaving. So I'm not sure about that specifically from my end, but I think 60 is safe and I wouldn't be surprised by 70, but I also wouldn't be surprised by 50 either. But the power play thing is, is a good thing to mention as well. Cause uh, the way I adjust power play is I look at their percentage of ice time so for Larkin, that was, I think, 45 or something over the last three years. And then I bumped that up based on what's expected. So I, he's probably going to be on the first power play unit this year. So I bumped that up to, I think, 55%. But he's not very good on the power play or hasn't been during his career. So he's going to have to actually figure out how to score there for that bump to really be meaningful. And if he can, then obviously 70, 70 points is not the question. But Detroit doesn't really have much talent to surround him where that power play bump might even work out. Like they have him, Mantha, Mike Green, I guess, uh, Nyquist. It's it's going to be a not very good power play. And just it's tougher to see him really exploding without figuring that out. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like that you called us on the Barzal-Larkin thing because it is sort of a similar situation where the, the, the incumbent longtime franchise cornerstone who attracts a lot of the, the big attention and has been used to getting the big numbers leaves, except Zetterberg wasn't quite doing that to the same extent Tavares was. So I think that's one reason uh, that maybe I'm a little more optimistic in Larkin, but it really was an Islanders tax. Not to say Detroit has been the best run organization, but that really was my biggest concern. Like I, I, I'm not a huge believer in quality of competition hampering mm-hmm. a player's ability to produce. And I'm interested, you know, that you said Larkin hasn't been a great uh, power play guy. And I'm really curious to know 
with the deployment that he he must he has to get this year uh, can he actually make himself into one last year just one goal on 27 power play shots which seems odd I feel like that's not his actual skill that he can actually produce better when like have regressed percentages that give him three or four goals on 27 power play shots. But this Mm -hmm. is a, this is the season where we'll get to see. Yeah, for sure. And it's a, it's going to be a a year where we see a lot of things about Larkin, what kind of player he really is. And it starts on the power play. I think his power play points for 60 was incredibly low for the past few years. And just circling back to Barzell, because I do remember another thing that was in his favor was last year he only got 18 minutes and without Tavares, he might hit closer to 20 and that reduces any possible regression that might be in the the forecast. So it's probably weird to see a player who got 84 and him projected for 84, 85 again, especially for someone with one year, but it was the age and that bump in ice time that helped things. With Larkin, I just... I need to see it to believe it. And I just, I've seen his power play skills not be very good. And that's probably why he was on the first unit to begin with. So this will be a, a telling year to, for the kind of player he is, but I think he's worth a gamble, even if he's on a bad team. Yeah. yeah. Just for the record, Elon is a little more optimistic on Larkin than I am. Like I'm in the 65, 70 point range, like, but probably closer to like, I, I would, I would lean towards the 65 end of that, but that, this, this, these are little nuanced bits that aren't that, important just if, if dylan larkin isn't a superstar next year i'm just saying blame elon <laughs> what a suck up a teacher's pet like, I Wait, that was that was for the listeners <laughs> I thought you for wanted... dom, although i hope dom likes it too yeah you just want dom to like you more than he likes me <laughs> nobody <laughs> likes me more than they like you yeah that's my main quality is i can get people <laughs> to like me that's i think why my wife sometimes doesn't like me <laughs> like you're a jerk why do people like you so much but anyway okay uh <laughs> Who are we going to talk about? Oh, yeah, with Larkin. I also feel like I like the idea that he's going to now get to play with Mantha all the time. You know, Zetterberg, the thing with Tavares, the comparison there is, like, I feel like Barzal still got really good line mates. Larkin had to maybe sometimes have to be sacrificed. Next year, he's going to get the best of the best. He's going to get the best power play time. So, I don't know. I feel like it's a little different, but lots of good points there. We'll see. And, and now I wanted to go to a team in Florida, which everyone's so excited about for next year. This top six is like mouthwateringly good. Now that they've brought in Hoffman and they were already looking so good last year. Yet we, we agreed on most of the top six, but there's two players where we disagreed on a little bit in Evgeny Dadanov and Nick Bjugstad. So Dadanov has only had this one year of NHL experience, but in it, he had a great year. He had 65 points in 74 games, which is a 72 point pace. And now, uh, Dom, you actually had him lower going to next year. So I'm curious, what was the reason for you to decrease him down to 61 points when last year he was on an above 70-point pace? Brian and I both pretty much had him landing in the same pace that he had last year. Well, with the team bringing Hoffman in, I just feel that the first power play will be Barkov, Huberto, Trocek, Hoffman, and Yandel. And that doesn't leave much room for Dadanov. And I reduced his power play minutes based on that. I think I, no, I think his time on ice maybe as well, but uh, those are basically the two factors is Hoffman comes in, Danov will probably see a reduced role, especially on the power play, and that would reduce his output. The reason that I didn't downgrade Dadanov a whole lot while worrying about his power play one spot is that last year he only had 13 power play points. So even if he does fall to the second power play unit, maybe he loses five points because of that on the, with the man advantage. But if he can keep up his even strength production, which was fantastic 
then there's not a whole lot to worry about. So maybe keeping him at a 72-point pace as he was last year is optimistic in what his power play deployment will be. I, I definitely agree that if the Panthers have Hoffman, he is a premier piece to have on your power play. So uh, it would make sense that they try and use him on their top unit or as much as, or as often as they can. Dadenov also 29. Like he's not young. And I feel like a lot of people uh, might, who might just be familiar. Oh, who's this new guy, Evgeny Dadenov? He came from the KHL pretty late in his career. So just keep that in mind. If you're hoping that he's suddenly going to grow and explode into an amazing player, uh, he's, he's 29 years old. He was already amazing last year. He doesn't need to grow. If anything, I think another reason to expect more upside for Dadanov. Now I'm just taking the pro Dadanov side in the debate here for fun. He also had that injury midway through, which like really hurt his production. Like afterwards, he went through a stretch of being really cold. A lot of people were even dropping that him in their leagues. And I remember suggesting on the podcast, like, no, grab Dadanov now because you know he's still playing with Barkov and like magic things are gonna happen. And then he ended the season so strong. And I feel like next year, if he could stay healthy all year, I guess yeah, this power play thing is definitely the big consideration. That's another team where it's going to be really interesting to see who gets bumped because you know Vincent Trocek also used to not be on the top power play it was Jonathan Marcheseau there a couple years ago and then it was only with Marcheseau leaving that Trocek got on there who knows maybe he's the one who gets bumped though he did so well but so did everyone that's why it's so interesting and like we even have the other line mate with Barkov and Nick Bjugstad who got up to the top line midway through the season and did so well there and I could understand Dom again like the reason why your model has Bjugstad low makes total sense because it was only a short stretch of the season where he was amazing after being a pretty much non-fantasy relevant guy for the past couple seasons or pretty much his whole career so do you agree that Bjugstad probably shouldn't be considered too high you have him for 45 points or do you feel like him being on the top line you got to give more credit to that last like half of last season it's probably somewhere in between he has a like last year was his breakout so i'd still be cautious that he doesn't revert back to what it was before but the fact he is probably still playing with barkov and the fact he succeeded there maybe means you bump him up and consider him but i'd still be a little worried especially since he probably won't get much power play time at all and that makes it's, it's always hard to draft someone who doesn't have that opportunity, especially in leagues that count power play points as extra. So I just, I'm not sold on Bugstad for that reason, but I mean, he's got a nice spot next to Barkov, so maybe he keeps it up. I'm just, I'm just not sure. The one thing that Bugstad had really going for him last year for the second time in his career was some really great shot rates. His shots per 60 were up to where they were back in 14, 15, uh, when he had three shots per game. Now, he didn't get all the same minutes in, in 2017, 18, so that he could get all the way back up to three shots per game. But if he did uh, have the same amount of minutes, he would have because his rate stats were there. So that was one promising thing with Bugstad. Uh, I, I get why... He seems like a guy who could be shuffled around the lineup, though. He has bounced between first, second, and third line for a good chunk of his career. So if you're if you're betting on him, you want to just make sure to take that into account, that his deployment could sink at any moment. Yeah, and he's he's very dependent on being with Barkov, and we saw he, he struggled to perform in a third-line role. And if the Panthers decide they want to keep him as the third-line center instead of someone like Henrik Borgström or one of the 15 other bottom six guys they have signed, then Bugsad's value just completely plummets because it's so teammate dependent. And those are the guys that, that always worry me because lines change so frequently. Yeah, that makes sense. Didn't Florida just sign Troy Brower? Mm-hmm. I wonder if he could get there. Pro- probably not. <laughs> probably not. Probably. I don't, who knows? Florida's another team where you have to tax any player on it because there is a concern about what front office is actually doing. <laughs> 
I feel like, I don't know if they're the same player at all. They're definitely in different stages of their career, but I see Bjugstad for next year a lot like Travis Konechny, someone who could land on the top, like someone who got on the top line midway through last season and exploded. No chance of getting on the top power play, but playing with, you know, in Konechny's case, playing with Giroux and Couturier and, you know, Bjugstad's place playing with Barkov and Dadanov. Like it's such a potential for a good spot, but also someone you have to be a little bit nervous about because what if they get bumped? Like Florida, you talk about all these people in the bottom six. In Philly, you've got, you know, JVR just got signed. Like, he needs to have a spot so who knows what happens there so yeah it's interesting when you have to decide whether to draft these guys that you know for sure won't be on the top power play mm-hmm. okay i guess i'll go to a couple more guys then we can end the show so we were already talking about vegas before so i probably should have just brought him up there and but the the next guy one of the only guys again that you are a higher on and i'm sure a lot of people can guess who this is going to be is william carlson on vegas because your model i don't think takes into account the fact that he had this really high shooting percentage which was a big reason why brian just plummeted his point total from last year to next season's projection you've got william carlson at 70 points brian had him way down at 55 i was at 60 i wanted to be a little bit more optimistic but uh what do you think about your carlson projection in your spreadsheet uh it's definitely concerning because obviously you know his uh his shooting percentage is high and that probably comes down he, he's a really tricky person to project this year, not just for the shooting percentage, but because last year was the first time he got power play time. So if you do a projection of just straight points for 60, you land at 60 points for Carlson. But then you see that that's based on him getting an average of, I think, 26% of minutes on the power play. So bump that up to 55, which is likely if he's a 1A in Vegas, and you double his power play point output. And that gets you the extra 10 points to get to 70. So that's the way my model works and how it got there. But it's just a little concerning based on how fortunate he was last season. Yeah, one thing that we noticed was his his ratio of primary to secondary assists was so lousy. 14 of Carlson's 21 even strength assists were secondaries. And he had essentially a one to two primary to secondary assist ratio, which is bad. You want it flipped. You want two primaries for every secondary to feel a little more confident that someone is actually deserving of of the points that they're racking up. His primary to secondary ratio, we're still talking about William Carlson, was one of the worst in the league up there with old Henrik Sedin, guys like Nemesnikov, Andrew Kopp, Timo Meyer, Nick Foligno, uh, one of the Richie brothers, uh, Cody Eakin, Johan Larson. Like these are not really primo passing players. And Henrik Sedin, of course, is. But Henrik Sedin is so good, he should get both assists on some goals. So maybe William Carlson is approaching that level, like approaching old Henrik Sedin level. But uh, that that is my biggest concern for William Carlson and being able to continue racking up assists. I love that he gets to play with Marcia, so I'm just not sure. Just looking strictly at the numbers, I would love to see a reel of every one of his assists so I can personally judge if he deserved to be credited with them or not. But oftentimes, if a player has an abnormal amount of secondary assists, then they probably picked up a few more points than they should have. When you brought up the reel, it's funny because I remember last year there was an article where someone tried to debunk his shooting percentage rolls by showing reels of how easy his goals were. Like there were so many times where I was literally shooting into an empty net because of a two on one or whatever. And they basically prove their own point because Carlson's not going to get those looks all the time, especially if people know this guy has arrived and are going to start defending him a bit better. So that's part of the shooting percentage luck is that 
you're not always going to get those easy looks. And that's a reason to regress him further. I actually was unaware of the, the secondary assist split, but that's definitely alarming. And I would probably steer clear of, of Carlson when drafting him, but not too far because he's still the top center there. He still gets to play with March or so. He's still on the top power play. So the opportunity is there, even if regression is likely coming for him. Yeah, I think you have to sort of play it correctly. Like if other people are going to reach for him, expecting him to have the same season, then for sure, let them have him. But if everyone is of the same mindset, there's no way he can repeat. Don't let him fall too far. Because like you say, he's still a top line, top power play guy. It's a, such a great situation. It's hard not to get points. And now they just got Pacioretty, which I guess it depends on which of these power play scenarios we lay down, mm-hmm. whether that's good or bad for him. Okay, let's end with a uh, defenseman, just like we started, you know, back with Burns and Tori Krug. I want to end with John Carlson, another guy who Brian and I were a lot higher on. We were expecting that he's going to be able to continue his 70-point pace that he put up last year once he finally took over as the for sure top power play defenseman on Washington. There's no more concerns of someone like Matt Niskanen or Dmitry Orlov. Like they're not going to be trading for Kevin Shattenkirk partway through the year to replace. And they just signed him to this big contract Uh, at the same time. So your model has him super low. Well, not super low, but you have him down as a 53 point guy. And I'd imagine that's taken into account a couple of seasons where he was getting bumped from that top power play. So do you have other concerns for Carlson aside from just the fact that your model is accounting for a couple of years when he wasn't the main guy? Uh, I think I have his power play time adjusted for being like a 65% range. And I think last year he was maybe even 70, to be honest. But I think the two previous years, he was still at that range. And last year was his big breakout. But I don't think we can expect that to necessarily continue if he has been top power play and been in the 50-point range before. And the reason they got Kevin Shattenkirk two years ago was because Carlson wasn't getting the job done. So while last year was a great season for him, he's not, I guess, as safe because there's been seasons where he's been the same exact role and not performed at that level. John Carlson also set that career high in shots with 237 last year, uh, had other career highs in his shot and shot attempt rate. So he's older. And I feel like this is where uh, circling back where you say your model regresses defensemen harder than forwards. And forgive me if I'm butchering some sort of wording uh, analytically about that, uh, like comes into play. Uh, Cause I still feel like John Carlson can essentially repeat last year because I think most of the capitals playing with him can do the same. But I also, I understand anyone's reluctance. I almost, he really reminds me going into fantasy drafts this year of what Victor Hedman was last year when he had his, I think it was a 72 point season. And everyone was like, yeah, I kind of expected this, but can I, can I really truly expect it again? Do I want to gamble? And Hedman was occupying this space where he was between like the most elite tier of defensemen and then the next bunch and Hedman was right in the middle. I feel like that's where Carlson uh, sits in a lot of draft rankings this year. Yeah, definitely. I just want to look at his ice time because I have him for for 23 and a half minutes, and that might be why he's so low because he might have had a silly amount last year. That He did. He had a crazy... He saw 77% of all available power play minutes mm-hmm. for blue liners in Washington, more than he's ever seen, and he'd never seen more than 63% share before of his team's power play minutes, which essentially, I, I think he was producing at similar rates in past years. He just never had the minutes to get all the way up to 70 Mm-hmm. And he, he played 25 minutes in total. So I think I bumped him down a minute and a half and I put the power play percentage a little lower than 77%. And that might be 
why, but at the same time, the two years prior, he was only at 50, 40 to 50 point pace. So I think 68 is a little aggressive unless everything just goes well in Washington again. Yeah, I know Brian's also super down on Alex Ovechkin after our Washington chapter <laughs> in our album. Whatever, whatever you do, Dom, do not tell Elon that Alex Ovechkin is not likely yeah. to uh, be. Don't spoil it. Brian, don't spoil it. This is my favorite part of the Almanac. I want people to hear it. <laughs> okay. okay. We'll tell the... Dom after. Yeah, don't... listen to the Washington chapter. Okay, Dom. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This was so great. I could just talk about all these players with you all night long. There's so many more players that I'd like to discuss, though I will say again, we agreed with you on most of the guys. It's just these outliers that make it look like we disagree on a bunch of things. But overall, I'm pretty happy, Brian, that we agreed with Dom Spreadsheet. And everyone, you've got to check it out for yourself. KeepingCarlson.com slash Dom. Also, Dom's a great follow on Twitter. So many funny tweets all the time and interesting. Great combo of it. So you could follow him at... I don't know. I don't have that in front of me. At Dom Lucician, and there's no way people are going to know how to spell that. So how do you recommend for people to find you on Twitter? Just search for Dom Hockey or something? I think that if you search Dom L, I'm probably near the top. There are not many not many Doms in the world, and I doubt many of them are, are verified. So I should be up there smiling with my sunglasses and <laughs> some incredible last name that you will probably ask me how to pronounce. But you did amazing pronouncing it. Like, first try. Nailed it. I don't know if you just remembered it from last year or if you are just really good, but that was incredible to witness. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I definitely did just remember from last year because we, we named the episode Courteous Lecision. <laughs> oh no, now I, I shouldn't have. Uh, oh, I blew it. I was all good and then I blew <laughs> it right now. So maybe I should just end it here. But yeah, follow Dom on Twitter. Get his guide. Get his almond. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just going to let you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, remembered it from last year. It's a really fun name to say. And I nailed it perfectly. Never get it wrong. But okay. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, Dom. Good luck with all of your drafts and all of your leagues that you already drafted. And yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a great time. All right. Yeah, thanks thanks for coming and complimenting us on our pronunciation. That might be a Keeping Carlson first. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't even try. I don't know what you're talking about. It was an Elon thing. <laughs> ah, darn it. <laughs> Everyone likes Elon more than me. There we go. I was, I was leading towards you until you just didn't even bother trying. Lucician. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. We're back to, uh, we're back to Elon. Sorry. Lucician. But I, I named the episode last year, which I think was very clever. <laughs> all right. Well, Shana Tova, everybody. And uh, we'll catch all of you regular listeners with the next regular show next week. No more interviews. I promise. We'll be back to just Brian and I. you Hyde. promise? The interviews are great. I know. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I love the interviews. But maybe maybe you should are. promise more interviews. Okay, well, there's not going to be. So I'm so I should have said I'm sorry, not I promise. <laughs> okay, bye everyone. Bye. Bye, Dom. Bye. <laughs>